0: This morning's reading will be from 1 Kings, chapter 8, verses 41 through 46. Uh, It's 1 Kings, chapter 18, verses 41 through 46. Elijah said to Ahab, get up, eat and drink, for there is the sound of the abundance of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and drink, Elijah went up to the top of Carmel and he bowed himself down to the earth and put his face between his knees. He said to his servant, go up now and look toward the sea. He went up and looked and said, there is nothing. He said, go again seven times. On the seventh time, he said, behold, a small cloud, like a man's hand is rising out of the sea. He said, go tell Ahab, get ready and go down so that the rain doesn't stop you. In a little while, the sky grew dark with clouds and wind, and there was great rain, Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. Yahweh's hand was on Elijah, and he tucked his cloak into his belt and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel.
1: I heard a story about a f- now that microphone's working. I heard a story about a father who took his young son out for lunch one day. And uh, they went to this very busy and therefore very noisy diner. And the father leaned over to his son and said, Hey, since it's so noisy in here, why don't we just both say a silent prayer before we eat? And so they both bowed their heads. They both said prayers. And, and when, the father, when the father finished his prayer, he raised his head, but he noticed his son kept his head bowed. And for the longest time, his son sat there with his head bowed. And finally, when the son lifted up his head, his father said, Son, what were you praying about for so long? And his son said, Well, how would I know? It was a silent prayer. Sometimes we're not unlike that boy, and we either don't know how to pray, or we don't know what to pray. Prayer is an essential and yet elemental part of discipleship. And far too often, people still misuse prayer or abuse prayer or prayer is absent from their life. In my years of ministry, I I still am amazed at, at how often someone will communicate to me that they struggle with prayer because it's such a vital part of the disciple's life. And this morning, as we continue our study of the life of Elijah, we're going to turn our focus onto prayer because prayer was a large part of Elijah's ministry. I mean, according to James chapter 5, verse 17 and 18, it was Elijah's prayers that initiated God's cessation and resumption of rain. It was Elijah's prayer in 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 20 through 24, that led to God's resurrection of the widow's son. And it was Elijah's prayer in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 36 and 37, that signaled to God it was time for him to show his supremacy by sending fire to consume that altar and that sacrifice. And because Elijah had such an active and powerful prayer life, James holds him up as a prayer warrior that we should emulate in James chapter 5. And when James said Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, what he was saying is that we're no different than Elijah. We're just like Elijah. He's saying that our prayers can be just as effective, just as powerful, just as beneficial as Elijah's. He was, in effect, indicating that we, too, can be prayer warriors like Elijah. But how? Isn't that the question that we always want to know? Don't we love how-to information? We love when we get a nice diagram of, of how to do something We love when we get a YouTube video with a step-by-step process telling us how to do something. We really operate better when it's laid out for us in a step-by-step process. And when it comes to prayer, that question of how, how do we pray, has been around for a long time. Even the apostles Turned to Jesus on one occasion and said, Lord, teach us to pray because we crave the answer to how. This morning, I don't have a nice YouTube video to show you how to pray, and I don't have an eloquent diagram to show you how to pray, but I think when we look at the aftermath of Mount Carmel that we read just a moment ago in 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 41-46 through 46, roughly, That we can see in it some information that tells us how to pray. Because in this little episode, (coughs) excuse me, this little episode that occurs after Mount Carmel, what we have is Elijah demonstrating prayer in a unique way. And I think there are five principles we can learn about how to pray from Elijah's prayer here. And the first principle I'm going to call the prioritization principle. After winning this great spiritual victory on Mount Carmel, what's the first thing Elijah does? Look there, 1 Kings chapter 18. What's the first thing Elijah does? Does he throw a victory parade like he won the World Series? No. Does he take a vacation? Does he head off to Disney World? As many victors do. No. Does he go home for some needed R&R, some rest and relaxation? No. The first thing Elijah does after defeating the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel is he heads off and isolates himself for a time of prayer. Look at 1 Kings 18, verse 42. And Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel, and he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. What's he doing? I've already told you that he's praying. The text doesn't specifically say that. So how do we know that's what he's doing? Well, if you jump over to James chapter 5 and you look at verse 17 and 18, which I've referenced already, what you find out is this statement. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and we read about that at the start of 1 Kings chapter 17. He prayed that it might not rain, and for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. And then verse 18 of James chapter 5 says, Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. What James tells us is that after Mount Carmel, Elijah prayed for the rain to come, and the rain came. We put this in the context of Elijah's story in 1 Kings, and that's what's happening here. Mount Carmel has happened. Baal has been defeated. And now Elijah is praying for the return of the rain. That's the first thing he does is go to God in prayer. What we're reading in 1 Kings chapter 18 are the final moments of the drought. We're reading about his actions immediately before God's rain comes. And James filled in the blanks for us by telling us that what Elijah is doing when he when he went up to the top of Carmel, when he bowed himself on the earth and put his face between his knees, he's there to pray. Now that answers the question of what Elijah's doing. But the bigger question for me is, is why? Why is he praying here? And, and here's, here's why that question comes up for me. If you go back to the very start of 1 Kings chapter 18, go to the very beginning of the chapter, go to verse 1. It says that after many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. Before the whole Mount Carmel thing, God had already told Elijah, Hey, I'm about to send rain. Elijah knew the rain was coming. Did it really necessitate his prayer in order for God to send the rain? Did Elijah have to pray for the rain to come since God had already said, hey, I'm sending rain? Wouldn't wouldn't God's announced intention to send rain make praying for it unnecessary? See, why did Elijah pray? Why pray if you know what's going to happen? Elijah prayed for rain because he understood that, as as one preacher said, God's sovereignty does not exclude prayer's necessity. Let me say that again. God's sovereignty does not exclude prayer's necessity. See, we can journey through Scripture, and we we read a lot of statements about God's awareness of what's going on. We can come to Psalm chapter 94 and verse 11, and and we're told that he knows all human plans. We can read in Jeremiah chapter 29 and verse 11 that, that God knows the plans he has for you specifically. And you can get over to Matthew chapter 6 and verse 8, where Jesus himself declared that God knows what we need before we ask him. God knows everything God knows what's happened in the past he knows what's going to happen in the future but that's not justification for us to cease praying because the Bible teaches that it's God's will for us to ask for his will to be done and so throughout the Bible I like the way a preacher said this. He said, The sovereign God often makes the sovereign choice to accomplish his will only after he's been asked to do it. And Elijah understood this. He understood that prayer should be our response to any and every situation. It should be our go-to practice. We kind of get this. We're pretty quick if there's a need, if, if there's a, a, a problem that arises. We might have a tendency to go to God in prayer about it pretty early on. Because we've read what Paul said in Philippians chapter 4 about not being anxious, but praying first. And so we kind of get that in times of need. But this isn't a time of need that Elijah's facing. It's a time when he simply is praying for God's will to be done, even though he already knows what that will is, and even though he knows that God is already going to to bring it into fruition. And what we should take away from that is that there is nothing in life, there is no situation in life, no matter in life, that shouldn't bring out our first response of praying. That's what a seek-first mentality is all about. It's about saying, God, I want your will to come to fruition in everything, no matter what. And Elijah's demonstrating that prioritization of the will of God by going to the top of Carmel, putting his face between his knees, and praying for God to send the rain that God has already promised to send. See, here's what we ultimately learn from Elijah. We learn that we don't pray because there's nothing else we can do. We learn that we pray because there's nothing better we can do. Even in moments where we already know what God intends to do. It's about prioritizing him and his will. That's the first principle we can learn about prayer from Elijah. That it's prioritized. That we... Put it at the top of our list of things to do because we want His will to be done in any and every situation. The prioritization principle. On top of that, as we look at Elijah's example here in 1 Kings 18, we come across what I'm going to call the submission principle. Did you notice the posture that Elijah took as he prayed? There in verse 42, he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. One preacher described this scene well when he said that "That the same man who stood tall in the presence of sin bowed low in the presence of God. Now I want you to think, why is Elijah praying in this posture? Why is he bowed low to the earth with his face between his knees, I think it's because he's physically demonstrating his submission to God. He's visibly communicating to God that his prayer is not intended to elevate his own personal will, but instead it's intended to bring his will into alignment with God's will. And one thing I found interesting is that most of the time when the posture of someone who is praying in the Bible gets mentioned, it's a posture of submission. So, for example, you can go over to Luke chapter 18, the parable of the the Pharisee and the tax collector. And this tax collector who shows up at the temple to pray, who is commended by Jesus, his posture is one in which he would not even lift up his eyes to heaven because it's a posture of submission. You can then go to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane in Luke chapter 22 and verse 41. We're told that he knelt down and prayed. And in another instance, in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 39, we're told that he fell on his face when he prayed. And as we know, that whole prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, those multiple times he prayed in that garden that night, all of the prayers were praying for God's will to be done. They were prayers of submission, and Jesus' body language in those instances demonstrated that. You can even back up to 1 Kings chapter 8, when Solomon prayed at the dedication of the temple. We're told in verse 22 of 1 Kings chapter 8 that he stood before the altar of the Lord and spread out his hands towards heaven. But by the end of his prayer, 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 54 said he had knelt with his hands outstretched towards heaven. So whether Solomon was standing or kneeling in that moment, his hands were lifted outstretched towards heaven. And it makes you wonder why? What does his outstretched hands have to do with anything? This may be more of a conjecture than anything, or may have nothing to do with it, but one thing I think of when your hands are raised, it's kind of like the international sign of surrender. I'm giving up. And maybe there's something behind that here. That he's trying to physically demonstrate as the temple's being dedicated and as he's praying that he's surrendering to the will of God. And, And it's interesting to me because in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 8, Paul gives this instruction. He says, I desire that in every place men should pray, lifting holy hands. Could there be a correlation? I'm not saying that every time we need to pray, you need to kneel down or you need to fall on your face or you need to lift hands in the air. I'm just saying that in the Bible, those postures were there specifically to demonstrate the surrender of the one praying. And Elijah, as as he's here on Carmel, as as he's this hero in the nation, I think he's trying to to physically demonstrate to God that he's not bigger than God. That God is still the one whose will is to be done. And I think the lesson we can take away from Elijah's prayer posture is that we need to remember who's in charge. And we shouldn't treat prayer like it's a form of customer service. We shouldn't approach God in prayer like He exists simply to field our complaints or to solve our dilemmas or to serve our needs. We are instructed to take all of our requests to God. I'm not trying to 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 uh, take away from that aspect of prayer. But we need to understand that prayer is not about getting God to surrender to our will. Prayer is a deliberate act of surrendering our will to God's will. Just think back to that model prayer. The prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray in Matthew chapter 6. In verse 10, one of the earliest statements in that prayer is, Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. And the point is that prayer exists not so that we can persuade God to accomplish our will in heaven as it is on earth, but so that we can communicate our readiness for God to accomplish His will on earth as it is in heaven. And I think Elijah's posture communicated that in a unique way. So as you pray, understand the prioritization principle, the idea that you're, you, you're, you pray first, that's your first response, and that the goal of it is to prioritize God's will. And also understand the submission principle, the idea that you're coming to prayer for the purpose of surrendering to His will. That not only do you have requests of him, not only do you seek his guidance and his lead, but you're there to surrender to following that. You want your will to be lined up with his will in the end, not the other way around. A third principle I think we can glean from Elijah's story is the specification principle. When we consult what James had to say about Elijah's prayer over there in James chapter 5, One thing stands out to me, and that is the fact that Elijah was very specific in what he prayed for. So I've read this a couple times already, but James chapter 5, verse 17 and 18 says that Elijah prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. When Elijah prayed about this situation, he was very specific about what he's asking for. He's praying, God, don't let it rain. He's very specific about the the, the request he's making. He's not praying in cliches. He's not praying generically. He's specifying what he's asking for. He knew in that moment, in that time, in that day and age, what needed to happen in order for God's will to be accomplished on earth as it is in heaven and he specifically requested that sometimes I think that our American value of politeness can interfere with our prayers we have a tendency to make polite tempered requests of God you ever notice that particularly publicly Maybe not so much in our private lives, but in, in our public prayers, we, we have a tendency to be a little more generic when we pray. So we pray for the sick to be healed, but we, we don't always specifically state what that looks like or ask God specifically what we're, we, we're, we were looking for out of healing. And we may pray for our missionaries to be blessed, but we don't specify what that would in could entail we pray for God to be with our children but sometimes we don't specify what we mean by that it's not a bad thing but why not be specific when we pray for go and do why not be specific When we pray for our shepherds, why not be specific? There's a story I came across in preparation for this lesson about the uh, former pro golfer and acclaimed drink inventor, Arnold Palmer. And according to the story, he once played a series of exhibition matches in Saudi Arabia, and the king of Saudi Arabia was so impressed that he proposed to give Arnold Palmer a gift. Being a typical westerner, Palmer kind of graciously declined the gift and and, and said it wasn't necessary, and, and in that polite state attempted to, to reject the offer, but he was informed, as my voice cracks, he was informed that it would actually be rude not to ask for something when the king offers it. And so he thought about it for a moment and, and he sent message, sent word back to the king and said, Hey, here's, here's what I'm thinking. If you bought me a new golf club, that would be a great way to remember my time here and and to uh, be honored by you. The next morning, a servant came to uh, Palmer's Hotel and delivered the deed to a 300-acre golf club. Now, I've since learned that that story is really an urban legend, but it does make a point. And the point is that if you're asking the king for something, don't think small. Remember what the Bible says in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 14, which is a passage we might even get to tonight in our roundtable study, just to remind you that we will in 1 John tonight. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 14 says, This is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will— He hears us. And so I want you to think, right now, what would it look like for God's will to be accomplished in this place at this time? What specifically would that look like? And why don't we pray specifically for that? Have you ever thought to pray Specifically, Lord, send us X number of souls that we can lead to Christ in 2021 or 2022, since we've got a new year approaching. Have you ever thought to get specific with those kingdom requests? Because Elijah was specific. And God specifically answered that prayer. Maybe one of the things we need to do in improving our prayer life is improving our specificity. But on top of that, we also learn from Elijah about perseverance. And that's the fourth principle we can learn about prayer from Elijah's time here on Mount Carmel. I want you to notice there in First Kings chapter 18 and verse 43, a detail that can be easily overlooked. Because Elijah there says to his servant, go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, there is nothing. And Elijah said, go again. Seven times he does that. So Elijah had his servant look for evidence of God's fulfillment of his prayer seven different times from the top of Mount Carmel. And that seems to indicate that Elijah prayed at least seven different times for the rain to come. And the only reason I think this is worth pointing out is because earlier when Elijah was competing with the prophets of Baal, and it came time for him to pray for fire to fall from heaven, and for God to showcase that he's the one true God, that fire came immediately after his prayer. In other words, when Elijah prayed for God to fulfill a supernatural request, it took one prayer for it to happen. And now he's praying for rain to come, which is a, a really a, a natural request. It took seven times for it to come to fruition. So if he only had to pray once for fire to come down from heaven, then why did he have to ask God seven times for rain to come down from heaven? I have to be honest, I don't know the answer to that. And I'm not necessarily looking for the answer to that. And I'm not making light of it because I really don't know why sometimes God answers prayers quickly and immediately and why sometimes we have to wait. What I do know is that Jesus told two different parables about prayer. The first is recorded in Luke chapter 11, verses 5 through 13. It depicts a a man whose neighbor is interrupting him in the middle of the night, needing some food for a visitor, and he repeatedly approaches that man for his request to be fulfilled until the man finally gets up and does it. The other parable about prayer is recorded in Luke chapter 18 in the first eight verses, and it depicts a widow who continues to approach an uncaring judge with a request until the judge finally fulfills her request. And in both of those parables, Jesus makes the same point. In both of the parables, Jesus points out that we should be persistent in prayer. One preacher pointed out that there's no such thing as an unanswered prayer, meaning a prayer that God never answered, but there is such a thing as a discarded prayer, a prayer that people quit praying before God God got around to answering it. And I think there may be some truth to that. That maybe our struggles in prayer... Our struggles with waiting. And we abandon the prayer far too early. Maybe that's why prayer is described as a constant, continual, or timeless activity throughout the Bible. Paul said, pray without ceasing, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 16. He instructed us to be constant in prayer in Romans chapter 12 and verse 12. And in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 18, we're told to pray at all times. And then Colossians chapter 4 and verse 2, continue earnestly in prayer. Maybe such passages aren't just talking about the constant state of readiness that we should be in when it comes to prayer. Maybe they're also indicating the frequency with which we should be taking our specific requests to God. See, Elijah's prayer on Mount Carmel, it can also teach us that that true prayer warriors are ultimately expert prayer warriors waiters maybe we can learn from Elijah not to just expect prayers to be answered immediately but to be able to be patient with God's timing because ultimately that's what it comes down to when we're truly praying for God's will to be done we're also praying for it to be done in his time and he doesn't operate on the same timetable as us and so maybe when we struggle with prayer we need to remember The perseverance principle. And we have to keep at it. That we don't give up when we don't see the results in the time that we were looking for. them, And there is one other principle that I think we can glean from Elijah's prayer here at Mount Carmel. And it's what I call the anticipation principle. We've already mentioned that in 1 Kings chapter 18 and verse 43 that Elijah had his servant look for evidence of God's answer to his prayer for rain seven different times. And 1 Kings chapter 18 verse 44 tells us that at that seventh time, he said, behold, his servant said, behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And then in verse 45, it's added that in a little while the heavens grew black with clouds and wind and there was a great rain what I think is worth pointing out here is that as Elijah prayed, he watched. He's not just wishing for an answer to his prayer, he's watching for an answer to his prayer. And those two activities are frequently connected in the Bible. The psalmist says in Psalm chapter 5 and verse three, "O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. That's prayer. In the morning, I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. When Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray, he instructed the apostles in Mark chapter 14 and verse 38 to watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And then Paul said in Colossians chapter 4 and verse 2 continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Watch and pray. My point is this. When you pray, open your eyes, because God's going to answer it. He may not answer it in the way you think, but He will answer it. And part of praying is having the eyes to see when those prayers are being answered. We prayed... Five long, long years to have another child. I didn't intend for him to answer it when I was 40. But he still answered it. Pray with watchful eyes so that you can give thanks when he does answer it. I want you to think, I want you to ask yourself do you pray out of a sense of obligation? Or do you pray out of a sense of anticipation? Do you pray because you have to, or do you pray because you believe He's going to answer it? Because Colossians chapter 4 and verse 2 tells us, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. When we pray, we need to be always looking for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. I know this isn't maybe a how-to prayer lesson that you were anticipating or looking to learn from. The prayer is such an essential part of the Christian's life that every once in a while we need to be reminded of just how important it is. And the Bible says that Elijah was a man just like us. And that means we can pray just like him. See, the most beautiful thing about prayer is the fact that we are invited by God to communicate with him. God wants to hear from us. So the ultimate question is not, is not can prayer make a difference? But will you utilize it to make a difference. I want to close with this poem that I've I've used before. It's called Too Busy to Pray. I don't know who wrote it, but it wasn't to me. I got up early one morning and rushed right into the day. I had so much to accomplish that I didn't take time to pray. Problems just tumbled about me and heavier came each task. Why doesn't God help me, I wondered. He answered, you didn't ask. I tried to come into God's presence. I used all my keys at the lock. God gently and lovingly chided, My child, you didn't knock. I wanted to see joy and beauty, but the day told on gray and bleak. I wondered why God didn't show me. He answered me, You didn't seek. I woke up early this morning and paused before entering the day. I had so much to accomplish that I had to take time to pray. This morning, we go to the life of Elijah, this continued study of faith during famine. And if your faith is in a a famine-like state right now, the best thing you can do is start praying. Because prayer really does matter. And it may be that you're here today, and you could use some additional prayers. That's one, ri- one reason why we are a family, and that's one reason why we gather so that we can pray for one another. More importantly, you may be here today, and you may hear about the, the beauty of prayer. You may hear about the benefit of prayer. But prayer is only powerful because we have one who intercedes for us. One who came to this earth, lived life perfectly, and died for us. And it's because of him that we can even go to God in prayer. And in this moment, maybe you need to know not only that he died for you, but that he did it so that your sins can be forgiven. And maybe that's what you need today a clean slate sins washed away, and your sins can be washed away. Right now, if you'll confess that Jesus Christ is the risen Son of God, repent of your sins and be immersed in water for the forgiveness of those sins. This morning, we offer the invitation so that whatever it is that you may need, we can help address it while together we stand and sing.
0: わー wow. wow.